Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode three, Should You Invest in Individual Stocks? First, what does it mean to invest in individual stocks? Well, a stock is a ownership in a, in a share of a company's equity. In other words, you actually own a piece of the company, and stocks trade on an exchange. So you have a brokerage account. You put in an order for, let's say, a share or a few shares of Apple Computer. You effectively own a piece of Apple. So you own the company directly. That's one way to own stocks. Another way to own stocks is by owning a mutual fund, which is effectively a commingled pool that has a professional money manager that is picking stocks for you. Those are the two primary ways to actively participate in owning stocks. Now, a third method is to own what's called an index fund, which is a passive vehicle that owns hundreds of stocks. In other words, it tries to mimic one segment of the market. We'll talk about each of these three avenues today, but I want to tell you a little bit about my story with individual stocks and my experience. I have spent time purchasing stocks, and I've spent time researching professional money managers and hedge funds whose primary job was to research and pick individual stocks. The first time I really considered buying stocks was I was in graduate school. And, and let me, I, I don't mean to boast, but I, I married into some wealth. Prior to, to getting married, I was, I was spending a semester in Provo, Utah. I had no money. I was going to school and I would sell plasma. And, and then I would take my plasma selling money and I would go to the grocery store and I'd buy canned chili and hot dogs. And, I, and that was sort of my life. But I also got married at the end of that semester, and my wife-to-be had wealth. She had a CD worth $5,000, which from my plasma-selling self was a ton of money. We didn't go out and buy individual stocks with that $5,000 right away. But two years later, I'm in graduate school. My wife, April, has a plush job making, I believe, ten fifty an hour. While I'm in graduate school full-time, I have an internship, and I'm studying finance. I'm getting my MBA in finance, and we're studying the investment markets. And I just, I just had to buy an individual stock. And so I finally, we had the CD coming due. I convinced LaPrille, let me take half of our wealth, $2,500, and I'm going to buy some shares of a company called Novell. Now, I was effectively an insider in Novell. I didn't have insider information, but I knew the company because when I was out in Utah, I 
worked for a temp company that would send me to this sort of subsidiary, I think they were subsidiary Novell, to called Prolitho, and we would put together the manuals for Novell. That's about all I knew about the company. I knew it had something to do with networking, but in, this was in 1989, 1990, and so the internet really hadn't come into, well, they really hadn't even had, they didn't even have browsers yet. That wasn't until 1994 when Netscape came out with the browsers. So in, in 89, I'm in graduate school, I'm buying a company called Novell that, that I vaguely, I know, has something to do with networking, but I wasn't really sure what that was, but I knew the company was hot. I was an insider because I'd been there. I knew the company existed. I saw their building. So I'd done some fundamental research. So I bought it. Now, this was pre-internet days. So you couldn't really track the stock. Like you could like look it up and you know, get a quote, ongoing quotes. My only way I could find out whether I made money that day was there was a public television program. I, I think it was National Business Report. I, I might even still be on. But they would list some stock quotes. And it's about five or six, maybe a dozen. And Novell was one of the stocks they would list every day. Now, that should have told me something. Stocks that popular, when there's 12 of thousands of the companies out there, the PBS program lists the one company, it's probably a stock that's heavily owned. But I bought it, I checked it every day, and lo and behold, it went up. And it went up some more. And I like to tell you that it went up and I made millions. But in fact, I probably made $1,500, which wasn't bad. And then I sold it when we bought our first house. But I got, I got the taste of what it felt like to make money in the stock market. There's a, an adrenaline rush when you buy something and, and it goes up. And I thought, I'm a stock-picking genius. I got my MBA. I worked in corporate finance for a couple of years. And then I got a job with a consulting firm where we would advise institutional clients, endowment, college endowments, hospital foundations, private foundations, some pension plans. We would advise these boards what to do with their money, like where, which asset classes, large company stocks, small company stocks. And we would tell them, or at least make recommendations, which money manager to use, or, or several, because... Typically, these, these institutional funds would have 8 to 10 money managers. This is in 1995, and I am given the opportunity to start meeting with and researching professional money managers, those who spend their full time investigating stocks. This was cool because I got great stock ideas. So I, and I, and since I had had experience picking stocks and was successful at it. I thought, well, if a professional could do it, I would just get some of their ideas. And I remember there was this one manager, Alex Brown. I'd probably been with his company that where I was consulting for maybe six months. And I, I didn't, still didn't have a lot of money, but I had my father-in-law who would advise, would ask me for advice. And I suggested that he purchase these two companies that I had heard from this manager, Alex Brown. Alex Brown was a growth manager, and so they would buy these high-flying companies with very high earnings growth, and they made, they, they told the most fascinating stories, what I call stock stories, about these individual companies. One was a, was a stock, a company called Il Fornal, I think is how you pronounce it. It was an Italian, kind of a higher-end olive garden Italian restaurant. They had started in California. They were expanding. 
Their growth was spectacular. I had never eaten there in my life, but I believed the, the potential of this company based on what the, the money manager said. The other company, I don't even remember what it was called, but it might have been, might have been Office Express. It was, it was a company that was rolling up, basically they sold office products directly to, to businesses. Now, this was, this was actually a business I knew throughout college when I was back in Ohio, I didn't have to sell plasma because I actually had a real job in an office products warehouse. And I would spend my days going around, or the evenings really, and I would have these order sheets and, and it was a huge warehouse. And I would essentially, I was a picker. I would pick out office products, fill orders, send the box up front. I knew the company, or at least I knew the business. I thought I did. So I thought, and this, this company, Office Express, was rolling up all these companies together and, and really going to take over and dominate the industry. This was sort of the staples, but for businesses. What a great idea. The manager convinced me. I bought the stock from my father-in-law. And didn't go so well. Both companies didn't do very well. And then my father-in-law passed away. And, and fortunately, it wasn't because I was a lousy stock picker, but it, it was still sudden. And so then I, I held these stocks and, and I watched them lose money and I thought, I'm not doing something right here. Maybe I shouldn't be a professional stock picker after all. About this time though, I started going more heavily and visiting New York, meeting with, with hedge funds. And I remember one particular hedge fund I met with was run by a man named Bill Ackman, who you might have heard of. He runs a, a very large hedge fund now called Pershing Square Capital Management, and he's been involved in, in a herbal life and kind of the ongoing battle with herbal life. He had a big position in J.C. Penney. Well, this was an early day, so this was sort of probably 2000, a very small shop. It was he and another gentleman, and this was the first hedge fund I ever met. And I'm in New York, Madison Avenue, very high floor. I sit down in a conference room with Bill Ackman and his partner, David Berkowitz. And I have to think of something to ask him. So I, I probably said something like, well, tell me how you manage money. And so they told me and they walked through their portfolio and they, they had some interesting positions. This was, this was dur during the, the internet bubble and where there was all kinds of dot coms out there and and they, they I guess they had one they had one dot com more of a, a gift it was a gift card company but primarily their portfolio were companies that that I had never heard of that were somewhat complicated situations and, and that's where I, I started hearing this term that you often hear with hedge funds which is a term you need to consider if you're going to buy individual, individual stocks, is informational edge. Some type of informational advantage. And that's what hedge funds are always seeking. Is there something that they know or have deduced that everyone else doesn't? Because the primary thing you need to remember if you're going to buy individual stocks is there's always somebody on the other side of the trade. Sure, you, you trade through an exchange, through a broker, but when you buy a stock, 
somebody sold it to you. Somebody is on the other side selling shares. So it is an auction market. The question is, what do you know about those, that stock, that company, that the seller doesn't? Do you have an informational edge over what they, what an informational edge, something? And, that, and that's what Bill Ackman, as they started talking about these companies, and, they, and there were real, it was a fascinating conversation. I was there for, for an hour or two, and I went back a couple, couple more times. Interestingly, though, even though I learned about what they were doing, that fund actually ended up closing. They, they ran into some, to some litigation issues, and it was just, it was actually, it, it just didn't, didn't work out for him. So that's when he started Pershing Square a couple years later and continues to manage money. But the key is, he had an informational edge when they would invest. And I thought, well, gosh, we research money managers. They all must have some type of informational edge. And this is sort of 2002 time frame. Now the, the internet bubble had burst. Which I was, I was, let me step back, because there was something else going on. There was a huge bubble going on in the stock market. And, and my neighbors were coming to me with stock tips. Taxi drivers had stock tips. I could see that the market was extremely, extremely overvalued. It was just clear. But this was a new era, a new paradigm. There are bubbles that occur in the stock market. And... And here is what I do, and this is exactly what I did when there's a bubble. I, I, I absolutely knew the stock market was very, very pricey. Yet, maybe it was a new era. So what did I do? I went out and I bought, took, by then I had a little bit of money. I took $5,000 and bought the most expensive, popular high-flying companies I could buy. I bought two. I bought Cisco Systems. It probably was selling at a price-to-earnings ratio easily over 100. And this other company called JDS Uniphase. I liked that company because it had my initials, JDS. That's about all I knew about it. Again, they were these sort of networking companies, which I didn't, I didn't quite understand. But I knew that if this, if this was a new era, that these high-flying stocks... We're going to do well. And so I bought at the absolute top. I believe it was summer 2000. And, and lost most of my money at that. On the other hand, I kept my profession because I'm telling my clients that this is a bubble, that you should still invest in companies of undervalue, that this is going to end and it's not going to end well. But that was kind of my safety net. I'm going to at least buy these two companies, get it out of my system. And that, that's sort of another lesson to learn if you're going to buy individual stocks. First, do you have an informational edge? Second, if you are going to buy individual stocks, be prepared to lose money. In other words, don't ever invest an amount in individual companies where your retirement is, is based on it. In other words, your success as a stock picker is heavily tied to your future financial wealth. There's a place for individual stocks, perhaps if you want to do it, but, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more in this podcast why that's the case based on my experience and what happened after I lost all that money in the internet bubble. 
Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. I was flying home one day from Ohio back to my home in Idaho, and I got what I thought was an absolutely brilliant idea. I thought, well, my profession... And the profession of my, in our research group that I was heavily involved in is to research money managers. We're in New York all the time. We have all these money managers going through our office. We're, we're global in, in searching for the most talented money managers that we could find. And I thought, well, what if we put together a portfolio of the top names, so like the top 15 names, of our top money managers. In other words, this was their high conviction ideas, the ideas where they would have had the greatest informational edge. What a great idea, I thought. And, and so I, I, started, I started getting all this information. I mean, I wasn't going to launch this thing without backtesting. I'm going to backtest it. So I started getting the stock holdings of, of the managers, and, and I would put them together in a portfolio. And I remember I'm sitting in my office in Idaho, and, and I, because I telecommuted for, I started telecommuting in 2000, telecommuted for over a decade. So I'm by myself out there in Idaho, my feet on my desk, and I'm running these optimizations 
with a software package, a six-figure software package called Bara, and I'm creating a portfolio. And, and then I'm going to create, so I have these holdings. I run it. Each month I had to run it. Here's the top holdings. I, I put together a portfolio of, of, I think it was probably 50 to 60 stocks, high conviction, informational edge, and then I'd calculate the return for the month, and I'd compare it to the S&P 500 index. Or it might even been the Russell 2000, a small cap index, because they tended to be small to mid cap sized companies. And here's what I found. My portfolio didn't outperform the benchmark. How could that be? These are some of the best brains in the business, and these are their best ideas. And I've put together a portfolio. And so the first month, yeah, they didn't outperform. And so I kept doing the back test, and I couldn't get the portfolio to outperform. And, and I was, I w well, I was shocked and extremely disappointed because this was my million-dollar idea. How could this not work? And, and I remember going out by the river and just sitting there eating lunch, just stewing. And because it meant two things. I mean, it, well, one, it meant it could mean we were lousy at picking money managers, that these were not the best money managers in the world, and these were not necessarily, well, they had to be their best ideas, but it could have been the best ideas of lousy money managers. But that just didn't seem right, because we, I mean, I could see that there were periods where they outperformed, and they held, they, they, they worked hard, they were trying to, I just didn't know. But then I got to thinking, what if the reason why managers outperform is not because I mean, they might think it's individual stock selection, but maybe there's something else going on. Maybe it's their factor exposure. Maybe it's their value tilt, or just maybe it was their sector bias. That they that was unintentional. They weren't even trying. They were trying to build these best companies, these these portfolios. And and maybe what I did is I taken these best ideas, and since I was optimizing them, so I was sort of sector neutral to the benchmark to the S&P 500, and there just wasn't a whole lot of bets in there. They were just good companies. But when compared to the benchmark, they just didn't outperform. They did, did terrible. I mean, not terrible, but it would have been better going out and buying the market because my concentrated portfolio of 40 stocks just didn't do it. And so I thought, well, if it's factor exposure, if it's your value tilt that's driving the returns, why don't I just create my own portfolio and just stop buying individual companies and put together a portfolio of exchange-traded funds? In other words, asset types or index funds that replicate portions of the market that are undervalued. And that's what I did. I put together a different portfolio, and, and if, if small cap was undervalued, I'd, I'd put that together. And lo and behold, I back-tested it, and it worked. Here was a portfolio of passive funds that combined actually outperformed the market and did so primarily by taking these, these sector factor weights and just focusing on what was cheap. Now, here's what I learned from that, and it's an analogy I use all the time. When you go out and you buy an individual stock and you, you, and you say, I think this stock is going to go up in value, you're making a prediction. And, and when you make a prediction on a specific company, it's a very, very specific prediction that certain things are going to go well. And it's like putting a bunch of popcorn in a popcorn popper and putting it under a heat source 
and, and saying, I believe this particular kernel is going to pop. And that's what picking individual stocks is. It's predicting which kernel of popcorn will pop. The portfolio that I put together where I took numerous exchange-traded funds, passive index funds in a portfolio was they had hundreds of securities, if not thousands, and but they were they were securities that were cheap, that were they're undervalued. And that was like putting an entire basket of popcorn under a heat source. And in that case, I didn't care which kernel popped first. I just knew that by and large, if I bought baskets of undervalued securities, they were embedded with positive surprises. I didn't have to predict which positive surprise. I just knew that buying a basket of undervalued securities was was effective strategy. And so I took that and we started marketing that to clients. It was, ex- it was extremely successful. And it was one reason I was able to retire about six or seven years later, about eight or nine years later, just because of that one idea that first failed because I tried to find managers that had an informational edge. And instead, I stopped looking for them and started managing money in, in a different way. Now, should you buy individual stocks? Well, if you, if you are, you need to consider two things. One, what do you know that whoever sold you the stock doesn't know? And two, are you willing to accept that the more specific your prediction for a given company, the more things that could go wrong? Things that you just hadn't considered. I've seen it again and again with money managers. There are some that are just incredibly good. But you know what? The best money managers that I know in the world do exactly what I do. They focus on segments of the market. They're, they're extremely diversified and, and they're buying elements of the market that are out of favor. Now, they're buying individual securities, but they're focusing on out of favors areas. They're willing to wait and be patient to wait for those opportunities and, and hold cash. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't ever buy individual stocks because the reality is it's fun. It's still fun to buy a company and and hope it goes up. But that is exactly what it is. It's hope that will go up because I, I can almost guarantee you that if you buy an individual stock, a company, somebody out there, probably dozens if not hundreds of people know more about what's going on with that company than you do. And so when you do it, do it for fun and recognize and don't put more money in that if you're willing to lose, that you'll lose it all. Because individual stocks is risky. It's fun. I'm not saying don't do it. But don't bet your financial outcome in terms of your retirement, your long-term wealth on doing it. I find it better either you buy the entire market with index funds or you can buy elements of the market that are undervalued, that are cheap. Buy these baskets of securities. It's just like catching the popping corn. That's episode three. Thanks for joining me. I would love for you, if you, if you could, to get on iTunes to, to leave a review. If you'd like to subscribe, that will be great. You can re-listen to this podcast or see show notes or introductions at moneyfortherestofus.net, moneyfortherestofus.net. Also, if you have any questions on personal finance, on money, investing in the economy, please email me 
at jd at jdavidstein.com. Thanks for joining. Just one more thing. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are for educational purpose only. It does not consider the economic status or risk profile of any specific person. The information on the podcast should not be construed as investment trading advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation to make an offer to buy and sell securities. Any return expectations provided are not intended as and must not be regarded as a representation, warranty, or prediction that an investment will achieve any particular rate of return over any particular time period or those investors will not incur losses. Thanks.